Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at Houston's bar and restaurant scene. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Joining me this week is my co-host, Mary Clarkson, the owner of La Olivier on Westheimer. Mary, how are you? I'm doing great, Eric. Good to see you again. Thank you for joining me. Let's just dive right into the news of the week. As a woman who owns a French restaurant, I can think of no better person to comment on the news that a new French restaurant is coming to the Heights. Manuel Puccia, who was Philippe Schmidt's right-hand man going all the way back to the Bistro Moderne days, who opened Philippe with him, who took over when Philippe became table on Post Oak and then has been the executive chef at La Table, which is the French fine dining concept that evolved out of table on Post Oak, is leaving that. He's going out on his own. He has taken the former Bedford slash Stella Sola slash black and white space at 1010 Studewood to open a French restaurant called Maison Pucha Bistro. And... He has recruited his brothers, a pastry chef named Victor and a sommelier mixologist named Christian, to move to Houston from New York to help him with this. Now, Manuel has not been super specific about what kind of food he wants to serve. It's going to kind of range. It's going to be a neighborhood restaurant. Now, the one thing he has been clear about is that they want to use some Ecuadorian ingredients. Manuel and his brothers are from Ecuador. They immigrated to this country 20 years ago. Mostly seafood, but also chocolate for the pastry program. Mary, are you intrigued at the thought of French food in the Heights? How do you, how do you feel about this? You know, I really think that French concepts as a whole are gaining traction nationally. Um, having been to great restaurants in New York recently, Lake Cuckoo was New York Times best restaurant of the year. Um, so I think, you know, hopefully this trend uh, makes its way down south. I'm excited uh, about the prospect of this, given his background, I hope that he has um, a following like Chef Olivier did when he opened his own restaurant. It really helps give you a better chance to succeed um, if you have a following. Uh, the space, the Stella Soul space, I don't want to say that it has restaurant curse, but I mean, part of me kind of thinks that it does. Um, the Heights is loyal to concepts that turn out great food day in, day out that are price uh, conscientious. So they're going to have to make sure that their price points are not the Latab uh, price points, I would imagine. Well, and that's one of the things Manuel told me that he likes about the Heights is that if you set the restaurant up the right way, you will see people two and three times a week. And the good news for Manuel and his brothers is that they have hired Shepard Ross as their consultant. Shepard was the driving force that opened Pax Americana with Adam Doris, but he has, in the past couple of years, really embraced this hospitality consulting. He he helped get Arthur Av off the ground and, and then helped them make the transition to Helen and the Heights. And then he was involved in basically all aspects of the new Karens that opened on Richmond. I feel like Shepard's presence, because he worked at Glass Wall for so long, which is right next door to, well, was right next door to, where uh, Maison Pucha Bistro will be, gives the Pucha brothers a leg up 
in terms of creating a concept that will resonate with its neighborhood? I think if Shepard Ross uses his network of contact, contacts from his days at Glasswall, that's going to be worthwhile for these guys. Obviously, they're new to the Heights. They don't have any background in the Heights, and Shepard has extensive experience um, in the Heights. That being said, um, you know, I think him being a consultant, I know you said it's full-time. I, I think it'll be best served if he's there for a longer than the opening period that say he was at Kieran's. Um, I think it'll take some while, it'll take a while for this place to get its legs and you need somebody who's going to stick by you through that period. Well, and this is all going to happen pretty quickly. You know, they won't commit to an exact opening timeline, but end of September, beginning of October, I expect to see this restaurant open and it will uh, one of my cliches. It will be interesting to see what happens when this opens in the sense that it's going to need to cater to different people or different needs at different times, right? So you need to be able to go in there and get a small plate or two and a great glass of wine at an affordable price at the bar. And you also need to be able to have a full like three, four course dinner there with wine pairings from Christian. And Manuel is a very skilled cook. There's no argument about that. But whether he can create a menu that resonates with people, I think that's where Shepard's influence will be kind of a make or break for the restaurant's prospects. Let us move on. I think every week we have a new Hugo Ortega news item. Last week it was that (laughs) Sochi had been named one of the 12 best new restaurants in America. And this week, it's that he is collaborating with Michael Mina, a James Beard award-winning chef with over 30 restaurants across the country, on the latest itineration of Michael Mina's Mina Test Kitchen. It takes place in San Francisco. It's going to last about three months, and it is called My Almita, which means My Little Soul, bringing some of the authentic Mexican cuisine, specifically some of the Oaxacan cuisine, that Hugo has become known for at Sochi to San Francisco. Mary, I I don't know that there's a whole lot to say about this as we probably won't get to eat there, but are you intrigued enough by this to fly to San Francisco? (laughs) Yes, I am. (laughs) Um, I was just thinking about Michael Mina. I think the first experience I had at one of his restaurants was uh, with Raja Par, who's a uh, sommelier that many people in the industry know. A master sommelier, yes, to be specific. Yes, a master sommelier. Um, and he he's one of one of the m- people that I respect the most in this industry. Um, I had the pleasure of traveling with him to France uh, with Jacques Salas, uh, Champagne, and the Village of Avis. But anyway, Michael Mina, everything he touches is, is first rate. Um, I love San Francisco. I don't get out there nearly enough as much as I used to. But this is something I would absolutely uh, make a trip out there for. And Congratulations to Hugo. I'm so, so happy for him and so proud of what he's accomplishing this year. And, and I think it's reward for all, all the years past. Right. And I think what interests me the most about this is that Michael Mina is, by any measure, one of the most widely respected culinarians in the country. And a sign that he is collaborating with Hugo Ortega on this new project represents that Hugo, who won a James Beard Award, finally after as his sixth time as a finalist in May, who's opened what is, in my opinion, his best restaurant. I had dinner there last weekend at Sochi and just had a fabulous meal from start to finish. 
is elevating himself to the point where, you know, when you think about Houston chefs nationally, obviously Chris Shepard and Justin, you come to mind. But I think at this point, Hugo is going to be on that list for people. I think Hugo's where it's at, okay? I mean, his cuisine reflects the most international um, establishments that we have in this city. I think they're reflective of what Houston is right now, which is a truly diverse city. And his cuisine is both regional and contemporary. And Sochi, for me, is by far my favorite restaurant out of all of his. Um, I've been there a few times. You've been there every single time they're just nailing it. I mean, I could really just go there just to have desserts, for example. Their pastries are amazing. But um, I love I love what he's doing. I'm super excited for this. I think it's time Houston gets some attention for what we're doing in the culinary world. I think we've been a, neglected for a little too long. Well, and the fun thing about this test kitchen is that the menu will change. So there'll be seven to nine dishes available the first month, and then a new round of dishes the second month, and then a new round of dishes the third month. So Certainly, if you are a Houstonian whose travel plans take you to the Bay Area, this is worth seeking out because it's going to be a version of Hugo's Cuisine that you maybe haven't seen before. And that kind of collaboration with someone who's so respected and as accomplished as Michael Mina can only benefit Hugo. And, you know, who knows? I mean, this is this is pure wild speculation on my part, but... Maybe maybe Hugo and his wife, Tracy Vaught, have aspirations to open a restaurant in California. Maybe this is like a little testing ground for whether that would be feasible. Ooh, that'd be exciting. No no promises. Just, just a pure shot-in-the-dark guess on my part, but you never know. Uh, next up, the news that Mala Sichuan, the beloved Sichuan restaurant that started in Chinatown and then opened in Montrose, has a very ambitious plan to grow, starting with a location in Katy, followed by a location in Sugarland, and maybe even downtown at the new food hall that's going to open in the Chase Building downtown. They're taking a number of steps to facilitate that growth. They're going to open a commissary. They have recruited their original chef, Rong Wu, back to Houston from China. That's according to a report in the Houston Chronicle. I really like Mala. I am excited for this. And I think it says something about the diversity of Houston's population that these two suburbs are getting their own Bel Air Boulevard style Asia town shopping centers that can support a restaurant that's as ambitious and as good as Mala. Mala's is one of my favorite restaurants. Um, you and I have done a lot of Asian restaurants in the last year or so together. Uh, I was extremely excited when they came to Montrose a few years ago. Um, I think that they've done really well there. I guess you might know more about that. But, I mean, I, I feel like all the foodies inside the loop were happy that they didn't have to make that drive um, so far. But, you know, Katie, Sugarland, Woodlands, I mean, you look at all these outlying suburbs, and there's a strong demand for great food uh, that sometimes is met and sometimes isn't. So I think there's I think there's room for them to enter these markets and be very successful. And this is another restaurant that's starting to attract some national attention. Their chef was a finalist for the James Beard Award this year, which seemed a little bit flawed to me because really that concept has always been driven by the owners, Corey Zhang, and her husband, Heng Chen. So I didn't quite understand 
giving the chef an award, it's, it seemed like kind of nominating the chef from Carabas for a chef award when it's really, <laughs> it's really Johnny who drives that concept. But it is another sign that Houston is gaining national prestige and that our diversity is what people find really appealing about us. I don't know. I, I think there's room for them. They could go beyond just these couple of locations. I feel like my, you know, I've got family that lives in the woodlands. I think the woodlands could use something like this. Uh, the population of the woodlands is certainly very diverse. All right. And then our last piece of news this week is that Southern smoke tickets went on sale Monday. This is Chris Shepard's barbecue themed fundraiser. It takes over the entire underbelly hay merchant blacksmith complex and really what Shepard does is he brings two of the best pitmasters in the world Aaron Franklin from Franklin Barbecue in Austin and Rodney Scott from North Carolina to Houston for a day Rodney Scott cooks whole hog Aaron Franklin serves brisket and then he surrounds them with a few of his fellow James Beard award winners Ashley Christensen from the Raleigh Durham area and then new this year John Besh from New Orleans, who, of course, is opening Eunice in the Greenway Plaza area, celebrity chef from New Orleans. And then uh, Mike Lotta and Jason Stanhope from a restaurant called Fig in Charleston. They are both James Beard Award winners themselves. And then the Houston Barbecue Collective, which is Shepard plus Ryan Parra from Cultivare, Terrence Gallivan and Seth Siegel Gardner from The Pass and Provisions, and Justin Yu from Better Luck Tomorrow and the forthcoming Theodore Rex who do cool Houston-y smoked meat. Tickets are not cheap. 200 bucks to get in the door. 350 if you want to be a VIP. There are 20 super VIP tickets available mm-hmm. for $1,000 each. That entitles you to drive around in a Lexus with the participating, <laughs> spe- the participating chefs on a food tour. Mary, you've been to Southern Smoke. Yes. Is it worth it? It is worth it, and I feel like every year it keeps getting better and better. Um, I'm super excited about John Besh coming to town. I just returned from New Orleans. Um, You know, he's going to add a great component. I feel like there's so much we have in common with New Orleans right now and him opening a restaurant here. I've met several of his chefs uh, a couple years ago uh, from his his concepts in New Orleans, and I think that's going to be a really nice tie-in, having a New Orleans added. Also, tr- the Charleston chefs um, are going to be a nice addition as well. I feel like he, I feel like Chris every year analyzes what he did really well the year before and what could be better, and he's trying to m- improve it and make it different each year. So he's doing a fantastic job. I'm excited to go, and I know it's a lot of money, but 200 bucks for an experience like this. You don't have to get on a plane or travel, and you get to meet all these great chefs. It's a lot of fun. It raises money for a great cause. Totally worth it. Yes, it raises. It aims to raise three hundred thousand dollars to the National MS Society in honor of Antonio Gianola, who was Chris's sommelier at Catalan and runs the wine program at Houston Wine Merchant. So that's a great cause that affects so many people. I mean, I I have been there the last two years. I'm sure I will be there this year, and I'm sure I will see you there. Yes, sir. All right. That does it for the news of the week. We will be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? There's really only one restaurant to talk about this week. (laughs) 
other restaurants have opened. Maybe restaurants closed. I don't know because the entire. Do we really care? Do we really care other than this one? We do not. No, at least at least in terms of what Culture Maps readers are most excited about, there is only one restaurant. It is a boozy, a apostrophe b o u z y, that just opened at twenty three hundred Westheimer. It is Sean Vereen, the former general manager of Brasserie Nineteen. He's gone out as his own. It is. Even in its press materials, the restaurant is described as champagne-fueled. That is because they have 250 bottles of champagne on their wine list Woo-hoo. and 1,000 total <laughs> bottles. Mary, we ate there for dinner on opening night, which was last Wednesday. You had a very good time. <laughs> Too good of a time. <laughs> How do you feel about... And, and you're, you're someone who has enjoyed many a meal at Brasserie 19. How do you feel about... What were your first impressions of a boozy? Oh, my gosh. Uh, excitement would be the first um, answer that comes to mind or the first word that comes to mind. Uh, I love this concept for a lot of reasons, uh, one of them it being extremely close to my house, and I can walk there. Um, but I'm really happy for Sean. He's worked really hard for this. I've said it before, but opening, you know, running a restaurant is one thing. Opening and running your restaurant is an entirely different thing. It's a daunting task. you do not realize how hard it is until you're doing it yourself. So I'm sure he experienced some of this, but he knows everybody. So you go into this place and people are happy. They're having a good time. They're excited to be there. That extends to the servers, the hostesses. Everyone is happy to be there, happy to serve you. It's a exciting um, atmosphere. And the wine prices, I mean, if I'm not drinking – you know, if I'm not at my restaurant and I'm drinking somewhere, chances are it's probably going to be a boozy for the foreseeable future. Well, yeah, you touched on a couple of different things. I want to I want to start with everybody's excited to be there. I have never seen so many customers hugging servers as I did at a boozy on the first night. There was that love it. <laughs> there was that moment of, oh, my God, I am so glad you are here because I am going to be here a lot. And I want a service staff that knows who I am and what I like. I don't want to have to go through that getting to know you process. It's like, just bring me my favorite, bring me my favorite (laughs) bottle of wine. You know what I like from the menu. Let's get that going. And then, of course, it seemed like every table knew, at least one person at every table knew one person at every other table. Listen, we were sending bottles to other tables. I had friends at other tables. They were sending bottles over to us. I mean, I just don't think you're going to see that in very many restaurants in Houston right now. It's a very fun atmosphere. Right. And Brasserie 19 has been the unofficial clubhouse of River Oaks since it opened. I've been sort of thinking of a boozy as Brasserie 19 2.0, a refined version of the concept the next level, the next evolution of the concept, do you, after one night, do you kind of agree with that assessment or, or do you at, think it's it's forming its own identity? One night and two separate visits. Um. For you, yes. I went home. You, you left and came back. I definitely returned. Um, okay, so I, I think it's in some ways fair to compare it to Brasser 19 or B19, How Could You Not?, but I don't want to do Sean and his staff the disservice of making those comparisons uh, completely. Um, the atmosphere is, is completely different. Uh, he has a ton of covered outdoor seating in his patio area. He also has 
um, you know, a pretty generous amount of seating inside. My only drawback is I wish the bar was a little bit bigger um, and there weren't so many um, columns in the restaurant so you could just see the whole dining room. But this is a more contemporary feeling restaurant than B-19 is, if that makes any sense. Uh, B-19 has a lot of French decor com- components that are beautiful, but maybe not as contemporary. So maybe they'll revamp and update themselves. But I feel like the food is still catering to his B-19 crowd, but is a little more Mediterranean and a little more contemporary uh, than B-19 is. Right. I mean, we ate our way through seven or eight different small plates and a lemon sole entree. And I really feel like that's how people are going to use this food. Start with like a tuna watermelon sashimi, maybe some raw oysters. We had an octopus carpaccio that we didn't love, but would need just like basically a little sprinkle of salt to kind of come alive. There's a bread service. There's a chicken liver mousse. I mean, it's all kind of designed to be shared. And that feels like the way to eat at a boozy to me. Go with small plates. Yeah. Go with a group of, you know, three people like sit, book a table of four, have four or five small plates, a bottle of champagne, a shared entree or two. Yeah. And maybe a, maybe a shared entree or two. And then that's it. And then if you want dessert, I say go around the corner to Petite Sweets. That's what we did. <laughs> yes, that is what we did. But you touched on the wine pricing. Can you just explain because it's, it's basically retail. Yeah, it may, maybe even a little le- bit cheaper. Retail or less in some cases. Uh, for example, uh, of course they're serving Veuve Clicquot, which there's nothing wrong with Veuve, but my preference is yes, there is. Okay, I was trying to be, you know, somewhat politically correct. Well, you That's still have to sell me. it. You still have to sell it. I oh, don't. No, so no, I'll... I don't carry Veuve. I, oh. car- I carry La Grande Dame. I don't cater to um, Veuve. Uh, my substitute in the past had been Delamotte. Currently, it's Nicholas Fiat. Um, I think you don't have to, you know, you don't have to drink Vuv if you're there. They've got 250 selections, but the pricing on Vuv I think was 48. Uh, the pricing on Delamont was 44. I'd go with Delamont any day of the week over Vuv, but to each their own. Uh, a friend of ours sent over a beautiful bottle of Cabernet uh, at the end of the evening, and I think that was priced at right at $100, and I've seen it on many other wine lists in town for 250 and up. So if that kind of gives you idea an idea of the pricing, it's really spectacular. It encourages you to have more than one bottle. I know that's what Sean's after. And listen, people are smart these days. They can look at their phone. They can look up any wine. They understand that you have to pay your bills as a restaurant, but they also want to f- feel like they're getting a value. Right, and so certainly a boozy is going to deliver on – the value for the wine pricing. The food pricing wasn't unreasonable. Small plates, mostly in the teens, entrees in the 20s and 30s. I thought the pricing on the food was fine. I think this is a restaurant that's going to, it's going to be the center of the social scene, certainly right through the fall, all the way into Christmas. I don't, I don't really see anything on the horizon that would take it. It depends a little bit on when Eunice opens and what the atmosphere is like, but Certainly, Sean is a, a known person in this world who has catered to this world for a long time. You have to feel like a boozy is positioned for success. Absolutely. He's got the Rolodex, and he knows how to use it. <laughs> All right. That does it for our Restaurant of the Week. I'll be right back with Thomas Wynn from Pelly Pelly. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? 
Our interview this week is brought to you by our sponsor, Eighth Wonder Brewery, a locally owned brewery, right located right in East Downtown. What I like about Eighth Wonder is that they pay homage to Houston's history, the Astrodome, the Eighth Wonder of the World. Their beers are Houston focused, they're designed for the local palate, and they like the brand itself. They pay tribute to Houston's history, so they just have a new Hefeweizen that just won a, a gold medal at a recent beer competition. It's called Weistheimer, after Westheimer. They have the dome foam that harken back to those bygone days of sitting at the Astrodome having a cold beer, but this is a beer that actually has flavor and that's pleasant to drink. And of course, the nice thing about Eighth Wonder is that you can go to their brewery in East Downtown. It's very conveniently located. It's the perfect place to go before a Dynamo game or an Astros game. You can have a bite to eat from the Ichi Boys food truck that's always there. You can have a couple of beers, maybe a, maybe a dome foam, maybe a, a haterade there, Gozo, that I find very refreshing because it's got a little bit of tartness to it. Or you can you can sit for something a little heavier, the Rocket Fuel there. Vietnamese Coffee Porter or the IPA, their new double IPA that's got 88 IBUs, that nice bitter kick that all you beer people really love. So thank you to Eighth Wonder. Interview is up next. My guest this week is Thomas Wynn, one of the three co-founders of Peli Peli, a South African restaurant that's steadily taking over Houston. They started in Vintage Park. They opened a location in the Galleria. Now they have one in Katy that just opened a couple of weeks ago. They also have Peli Peli Kitchen, a fast casual concept in Spring Branch, and Peli Deli, an even faster and more casual to go, mostly to go concept <laughs> in downtown Houston. Thomas, uh, thanks for joining me. How are you? Eric, thanks for having me, man. It's a pleasure. I, I just want to kind of, well, I want to dive into everything that's going on with Peli Peli, but I want to start with kind of how you got into the restaurant business because you're a you're a Katy native, right? Yes. Uh, your family immigrated here from Vietnam. You went to Texas. You went to law school. And then somehow you found yourself in the restaurant business. <laughs> I've heard that story before, but but I, I don't know how many other people have. And so I was just hoping you could start by sharing that with us. No, I'd love to. Um, I, you know, my parents, typical Asian household, you know, when I grew up. And I don't blame them. My parents had a very difficult time when they immigrated here. Uh, my dad, I mean, manual labor, you know, long hours. And so they just wanted something better for me. Um, it was either become a doctor, become a lawyer. You know, a lawyer seemed like a great thing at the time. So went to undergrad at UT, went to law school there, great law school, met a lot of wonderful people. Um, and I just realized it wasn't for me. Um, I didn't enjoy class. Um, I, I thought it would get better when I graduated and actually worked. It was actually worse. Um, and it took some time for me to, you know, thank God I met uh, one of the partners, Michael Tran. We went to college together, and he was actually one of the first ones that said, man, why are you even doing this? I, I never thought you would even enjoy being a lawyer. I, just, I thought you would enjoy more advertising, marketing, branding. You're just a little bit more of a people person rather than, you know, I, I just don't picture you as a lawyer. And so that started the process. And Michael had a technology company at the time doing point of sale for restaurants, and he asked me to to leave and join him. And it wasn't an, an easy decision. And it took quite a bit of a time. Uh, but I was so disenchanted with my life at that point. I was 27 and I figured, hey, you know, at least now if, if I make this jump and it doesn't work out, I have to file bankruptcy. It won't affect anybody. I don't have kids. 
Um, and that's really was my thought process at the time, to give it a chance. Um, and so I did. And Paul was one of our first customers, uh, Michael's technology company. Paul was actually one of our first customers when he had Paul's pizza shops. And so a lot of people thought, think that I left law straight into Pelly. It wasn't that. There was a, I was kind of lost for a couple of years and it took some time to figure out what I really wanted to do. I've never been in a restaurant, worked in a restaurant before, no prior uh, experience. I've never even taken any marketing classes. So I had to kind of learn everything on the fly and it's taken me a long time, but, um, you know, we're now we're here. So, uh, it's been a great experience overall. Well, and you know, not just marketing a restaurant, but marketing South African cuisine (laughs) in vintage park. How did you get people initially who, you know, now you guys have a reputation now when you open in Katie, people are excited about it. But in the beginning, you had to sell it. What was the initial appeal? How did you make that pitch to people? Uh, trial and error, really. Um, I, we didn't know how we didn't have money to traditionally market. And I think that was a blessing in disguise. Uh, and so it was educational hurdle was so tough. And then, and then you have an Asian guy telling people about South African food. It was, it was very difficult at in the beginning in the suburbs. So, you know, for me, um, it was understanding what people responded to. We used to do ads and say, Hey, try out the South African restaurant. And we realized that the return on investment was so slim because no one really cared about, or knew about what South African food was. And so we realized we can't do what everyone else does because we don't have those benefits of people understanding what it even is. You know, our first menus had a lot of pictures in it. It looked like an IHOP menu. Um, you know, a lot of descriptions were, I mean, it, it was just a, it was a mess in the beginning, but I'm thankful that, um, I think what ended up happening was a lot of people that did come in, the few customers that we had in the beginning, uh, word of mouth, really. I know that's kind of maybe an abused over news uh, phrase, but uh, it literally was that way for us because there was no other way for people to trust us enough to give us a try at that point. Right, and you built something pretty special in Vintage Park in an environment where maybe there weren't a lot of fine dining options and maybe you could become that home for celebrations, for birthdays, for anniversaries. You probably hosted more than your share of engagements, Yes, if I had to guess. <laughs> I think one of the things that really defines the Peli Peli dining experience is, is the service. How much of a role did you have in that? And how did you, how did you kind of realize in the beginning that that was where you were going to stake your reputation? So when we opened by default, I ended up being the general manager of vintage park without having much experience. And so, um, I didn't have the technical skills of service. I couldn't even tell these kids how to open a bottle of wine. I mean, I had to learn myself. And so even to this day, I appreciate you saying that, but, you know, Peli Peli, we're not, I think if you measured us against another restaurant like Brennan's or something like that, I mean, technically, there's no way we could compete. And I don't think we ever will. Um, What we do specialize in, and the only thing I could do was making sure that customers were taken care of. And so it's just that more overriding philosophy of, Look, may not be the best. I may uh, skip some steps of service here, but we try to hire good kids that have good intentions and, you know, really have a bigger heart. And that's kind of how we hire and kind of how we make up for the lack of sophistication in terms of service. Um, You know, we hire kids that people generally really like. Um, They're nice kids. They enjoy being there. um, And they they sincerely want to take care of the customer. And I, I think ultimately people pay attention to that 
thankfully a little bit more than they do, you know, for some of the technical skills. But I, I don't think people that really expect that come to Pelly. I think they just come there. It's a little bit more upscale casual. So I think they're okay and a little bit more forgiving with some of our the ways that we serve. But um, I think generally they enjoy the experience. Yeah, I mean, I just think about, you know, we had dinner there at the Galleria location a couple of years ago and you had someone who was studying musical performance as one of the servers and it's like the best version of happy birthday I think I've ever heard. Uh, thank you. It's, that was uh, that was uh, Steve Harmon and he's actually in Katie now. So, but I think, but I think you've kind of understood that aspect of, you know, dining should be an occasion and that, and that, you know, it's one of my, one of my worst pet peeves is when a server comes up to me and says, are you working on that? It's like, if it, <laughs> if this were, you know, if this were work, I'd have a keyboard out, you know, I'd be, you know, dining is supposed to be pleasurable. And I think mm-hmm. one of the things that Peli Peli does well is that it, it creates that experience for people. Well, thank you. We have this thing we call the NASCAR rule, you know, and, and NASCAR, all the technically supposed to be, all the cars are supposed to be the same. So it's up to the driver, right? That's how you win. So for us, we assume that everyone has great food. Everyone has great service. What else can we do to make sure that the customer leaves happy? Um, and then when you opened the Galleria location a couple of years ago, were the customers different? Did you have to kind of reset what you were doing for a, an inner loop crowd, so to speak? I, I had those concerns. Um, but ultimately, I think um, customers that come to Pelly and the Galleria are still looking for something sophisticated, but a little bit more casual. Um, and, you know, when we first went there, I was, I was scared to death because we're, we're coming from the suburbs. I'm coming into Interloop or, you know, close to and dealing with the demographic that I'm not used to. And there was a fear there uh, for a period of time. But um, we're finding out that you still have a lot of visitors, uh, travelers from different countries. They still want something Houston, but they still want something a little bit unique. Um, you have a lot of people from Houston that they want something a little bit different, but I think the market's kind of getting away from the white tablecloth and people want to come in a polo and jeans sometimes and, and still feel like they're eating in an elevated environment. And I, that's kind of our niche. So, Right. You know, if people wanted a conventional, especially at the Galleria location, if people wanted a conventional American style restaurant, I mean, they could go across the street to like Grand Lux or they could go to the steakhouse next door or something. You know, if they're coming to you at this point, they want the babuti. They want the South African prawns. They want something a little bit different. Yeah. Do you find that has the has and you've you've tweaked some things? I mean, I know you you've hired a you hired a mixologist for a little while. Did you find that any of that stuff made any difference? Did that have you have you built a happy hour business? I mean, has that has any of that taken off? Um, I. I think our happy hour business has been doing very well. Uh, we do have off cocktails, beers, glasses of wine from two to seven, Monday through Friday. Our issue has always been when we first opened our first four or five years, we had a non-existent bar program. In my opinion, um, we just didn't have the expertise. I mean, Paul, that's not Paul's experience. Um, and so we focused. it was all about the food. And so in the last few years, we've focused a little bit more on wine. So when we first opened, I don't know if you're aware, but 60% South African wines. Now we're up to 90% um, oh, wow. because people, that's what they're wanting now. Um, we hired a wonderful girl named Michelle Sima Franca. She's overseeing our beer and wine program. 
I just want to be able to provide the same experience that other restaurants are able to provide their customer base. And I think we've been lacking in the bar wine department for many years. Uh, and, and I wanted just to make sure that our customers get the same experience that they can get at other restaurants. And then, you know, it occurs to me that just in the last year, you've opened Peli Peli Kitchen, Peli Deli, and now a third Peli Peli in Katy. It's a lot. It, it, it's a little crazy. This is this is our big year. It was make or break, really. I, I freaked out most of the year. <laughs> what are you What are you doing to manage the growth to make sure that your quality stays consistent? Uh, bringing on the right team members. I mean, really, you know, Paul hasn't cooked since 2012, and I don't plan for him to be in the kitchen ever again in that capacity. We can only grow as much as our team allows us to. Um, great employees that we've hired in the last few years, Steve Riley. Uh, Tracy Miller, we brought in a lot of people that enabled us to focus on what we're good at. Um, they've been able to manage the store locations. We've been able to um, promote from within. Toya Williams is a, a shining example of a girl that used to sing for birthdays, started as a server at Vintage, bartender at Galleria, now is a GM at Pelly Deli. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Vince Davila, he started as a server at Galleria, now is a GM at Pelly Pelly Kitchen. So, you know, without people like that, we wouldn't be able to scale out. And we have one more left before we take kind of a little bit of a break. And that will be, you know, in Austin at the end of the year. Um, so we'll see what happens. That, that's going to be our big make or break. Yeah. I'm really curious. I, I, I'm glad that you got to this because most Houston restaurants do not open locations in other cities. What about Austin appealed to you and... What are you doing to prepare for it? Uh, so to understand why we're going to Austin, you know, it, it's, uh, it's so much more than just, you know, I went to school there and, you know, I love Austin. It, you know, we are trying to become the concept that truly defines and like proof of concept that South African is a viable food category. Um, that remains to be seen if, if that's possible on a national level. Um, but we want to be that concept. That's why we started a fine dining. That's why we did a fast casual so that we're able to potentially grow and expand. And Austin just makes sense because I think, um, you know, if we can make it in Houston and Austin, I feel very comfortable with our chances with the rest of Texas. And I really want to focus on Texas the first, the next couple of years. I, I want to become hopefully a regional favorite. I want people to understand that we're from Texas. We're from Houston. So, you know, we're not going outside of Texas for the foreseeable future, but that is the ultimate goal. Um, the ultimate goal is to have a Pele Pele in every major city in the U.S. at some point. Um, but that's not going to happen unless we are very successful in Austin. Um, we're going to, for us, we, we have a lot of relationships in Austin. There's a lot of South Africans in Austin. Uh, we are just, to prepare for it, we just have to make sure that Katie and the locations here in Houston continue to uh, grow and people continue to be passionate about what we do. Um, I think if, because eventually it's the buzz that always carries you. And it's the positive word of mouth. And, uh, you know, people are going to go online and they're going to read about us and they're going to look at the reviews and they're just going to you either sense that people are passionate about a concept or they're not. You know, I think, you know, I would dream of having similar success like In-N-Out and Whataburger and Shake Shack, but not necessarily in the numbers. And I'm not saying I would ever compare myself to them. But, you know, when they came in, people were just genuinely excited about their, their, their them coming into the city. And that's because... I think their word of mouth was so powerful that, that in from the region that they came from. And, and we'd like to replicate that in some, some way. So do you think, so, so Peli Peli Austin is next. 
are you going to try to grow Pelly Pelly Kitchen next? Is that maybe to other locations in Houston? Like what's in the sort of the, say, six to 12 month horizon? Six to 12 month horizon. I would like to add a, another Pelly Pelly Kitchen in Austin. That way we'll have a fine dining and a fast casual uh, component in, in that city. Um, then I'd like to either add another kitchen. I think there's a lot of room for more kitchens in Houston. Uh, would be nice to add another one. And then um, potentially in 12 months, 12 to 18 months, uh, at least signing a lease for a flagship in Dallas, Fort Worth. Wow. You had discussed previously thoughts about opening Pelly Pelly in the Woodlands. Is that still a goal or have you kind of shelved that? You know, we've been wanting to go to the Woodlands for a long time because um, 10, for, 10 to 15% of our customer base for Vintage Park comes from the Woodlands. And I think there's a market there. The community is wonderful there. We are really close at getting the old Cafe Express location on Market Street, and it fell apart at the last minute. Um, and, and then we ended up going with Katie. So I, you know, I think it worked out. But um, I would like to find a home in Woodlands uh, one day for a kitchen or a flagship. How is Pelly Pelly Kitchen doing? I'm sorry. I feel like I'm, I'm hopping around, but you it's guys have good. so many different <laughs> things going on. I just want to try to make sure we hit everything. So how is Pelly Pelly Kitchen doing? Are you, are you happy with it? Pelly Pelly Kitchen is turning out to be everything we wanted it to be. Um, we wanted an alternative. A lot of our customers were finding out. I mean, it, look, Pelly Pelly is great. The, pi- the price point is higher. You know, it's, it's, it's yeah, not. I mean, realistically, you're going to spend, I'm going to say, 50, 60 bucks a person. That's right on the money. Yeah. Right on the money. And for us, you know, there's, there's a certain market that you just cannot reach. And I want our customer base to be able to eat at our restaurants every day. And, and Pelly Pelly Kitchen allows that. I mean, literally everything is under $15. There's a lot of, all the sandwiches and tacos are under 10. Um, you can take out a family of four and, and it can be very affordable. And I do have people that eat our Pelly Pelly Kitchen through two or three times a week. Um, it's easy to get in and out because you get your food immediately. So, for us, it just allows us to build our customer base and it allows more people to try out our foods. It's not it's a totally different menu, but it's similar flavors. So are you seeing then Pelly Pelly Kitchen customers that show up at the Galleria location being like, I never would have come here until I had, you know, a non taco at Pelly Pelly Kitchen? Yeah, we're seeing both. So okay. yeah, you know, I'm seeing people that half the people when we first opened, they've already heard of us. And they appreciated that we had a more affordable alternative. And then you have people that never even heard of us before. And the first time they've eaten any kind of South African inspired food is at Pelly Pelly Kitchen. So some of them have appreciated that, hey, there is a nicer version of this um, at the gallery or in Katy. Um, and especially the adults and date nights. Um, they really enjoy that when they don't have the kids. And then I know you've explored a bunch of different options for financing all this growth you did you did restaurant startup uh remember we tried that kickstarter yeah, yeah you, tried, <laughs> you tried kickstarter uh you got uh i don't remember someone in the media had some fun at your expense over your kickstarter mm-hmm. well that was more of a marketing thing that wasn't to raise money right um but you you found some success on the next seed platform and i suppose you actually deserve some congratulations you're the first next seed participant to raise a million dollars for a single project. Yes. Uh, we, after Chapman and Kirby did it, you know, I'm friends with Ben Tran and, and Juan Cao and, and they did Chapman and Kirby and they raised 458,000 on next seed a couple of years ago. And I said, man, 
I've, we've always had a problem with banks. Um, as most restaurateurs probably understand, it's, banks don't like restaurants, especially ones that grow. Um, not all of us can be taste of Texas and have a ton of cash on hand. It would be nice, but we don't. Um, so next seed um, is the, I believe they're the first debt um, crowdfunding approved by the SEC. They're a great group of guys, Young Girl and Abe, and um, they have a heart for entrepreneurship. And we've used them twice. We did uh, one uh, early on last year for 358, and then this second one for Austin. And and we've ended up with, if you combine the two next seeds, we ended up with over 500 individual investors that are now part of our um, family. And they support us every time they come to the city. They email us, meet them. It's just it's it's really nice to have a community of people that really believe in what you're trying to do, and um, next seed and of course the financial aspect it it solves a problem, and yes you're paying a little bit more interest rate but I think when you add in the marketing benefits and building a community around you it's it's worth it to me. Well, and it's worth noting you you already paid off that initial three hundred fifty eight thousand. Yes. Ahead of schedule, as I understand it. Way ahead of schedule. When we refinanced our, our, our SBA, included the, the next seed. So that worked out great. So then, and then the million dollars will fund the Austin expansion. Yes. Uh, and it gives you, I mean, you touched on this, but it gives you a community of people who are literally invested in your financial success. <laughs> so hopefully they like show up to eat and tell their friends about it and all that stuff. That is the intention and that's what's happening. I mean, they are raving and they just feel like and they are part of the process i mean we we really do reach out to them they're the first to know what's going on they they feel like like a window into the business obviously they've seen our financials and then now they kind of understand we have parties we have a celebratory party in early august at the new commissary and you know we get to hang out with them we get to drink we get to relax with them and share with them our issues but also share with them the journey and some people really like that. You know, if they're already enjoying the food, they feel like it's just a really cool experience to get to know us on a personal level. Right. And you mentioned the new commissary and I've, I've been deficient. I haven't asked you about that, but just tell me a little bit about why you lease that space and, and what you're hoping the benefit will be. Main benefit really is to allow us, one of the issues that you touched on earlier is how do we maintain consistency as we grow? And for us, we, our kitchen space um, is really handicapped and we're starting to do more catering projects. But a lot of the big ones are during the weekends, which is when we happen to be busiest too. And so it's going to allow us to uh, have all of our product delivered in one space, have it all delivered, ready to go at each location, help us main, you know, reduce prep costs, reduce overall uh, prep labor, um, and also allow us to uh, work on our product line you know, we're going to be the concept that defines South African as a viable food category should contain some food products, hopefully at the grocery stores too. So um, we'd like to visit that. We already have great sauces and seasonings um, and we'd like to be able to experiment with it and also look into uh, putting those in some of the local stores. So you mean like Peli Peli frozen dinners? Uh, I wouldn't I don't know about frozen dinner, but first we got to do a hot sauce. We got to get the seasonings out there. It'd be nice to have some uh, biltong, the beef jerky. Right. I think, you know, anything I don't want, I still don't want to take away from the experience. And, you know, anything that they get at the stores, I still want them to be able to eat, resemble what it would taste like at the store level. And I think beef jerky is a really good starter for us. Well, and the one thing we should make clear is that 
you know, if some of the prep work is done in a commissary, everything's still cooked fresh. To oh, absolutely. absolutely. That, that's come up more than once. And yes, everything still has to be cooked. It's just that when you do things in big batches, you know, it's, there's only so much that you, volume that you can do. And we want to do really big batches, deliver them to the stores, but everything's still going to be cooked at the store level. All right. And then I know we're running a little bit low on time, but there is, we had a, we had a private conversation a couple of years ago and I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going right. to make that private conversation public <laughs> right here on the podcast. All right. Scared. <laughs> you, you bought me dinner at your restaurant and, and we were, I think we were almost to dessert and you looked at me and you said, Eric, I want to ask you a question and I want you to give me an honest opinion. And I said, Thomas, you bought my dinner. You've had a great time. <laughs> like the least I can do is give you an honest opinion. Now, do you, I'm I, sure I know, you remember. I think I know what you're talking about. Yes. Right. You asked me, are we a cool restaurant? Yes. And I said, no. <laughs> now we've talked subsequently and you've said that that was like a clarifying moment for you. And so I just wanted to ask you about it. What, what was it about that conversation? What, what changed for you when I expressed my opinion that, that Peli Peli takes great care of its customers and serves good food, but I don't consider it a cool restaurant in the same way that, say, Cultivare sure. is a cool restaurant. Sure. You know, it's funny that you bring it up because that has been almost a defining point for us. Uh, and I equate it to when a, a nerd in high school, which I was, when someone finally tells you, Thomas, you're never going to be one of the cool kids. And what it did for us at that point, we're always trying to get validation, right? Because we were doing a new concept. We're South African, really popular with customers, but we just did not seem to gain real cool traction with critics. And I spent a lot of time trying to kind of, I guess, fit in. And, you know, for us at that point, we said, you know what? We're never going to be cool. And it just allowed us to kind of be us. And, you know, and the funny thing is, instead of when you're not trying to impress people anymore, you're just kind of being you. Uh, you know, I think it ended up having an effect to where we're not cool, but I think people just find us, hey, the guy's kind of cool. I mean, you know, they're, I mean, they're all right, you know? I mean, they're, right. you're certainly respected. Yeah. So, and, and you're profitable, which, you know, you would much rather be a profitable, uncool restaurant and a really <laughs> cool restaurant that goes out of business in six months. But, you know, we have enough, I guess we have enough uh, people that like us and, 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 you know, and I just, I, I, I'm glad that we had that conversation and, you know, because you shouldn't be a guy that tries to impress people to be cool and to fit in. You know, that's not, I wish, I spent a lot of time doing that in high school. I wish I didn't. But, um, but for me, I, I took it personally, but then I realized, you know what, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Just be you. So we've been us ever since then. And some people don't care for us. Uh, I had a guy comment on one of our things the other day about the espatada saying uh, we're all into, we're always doing gimmicks, you know. I wish they would just cook good food, you know. And, you know, some people are just not ever going to like us or get us, um, but I, we're finding out that there are a ton of people do that do love what we're about, love what we do, and love who we're becoming. So it's been great. I appreciate that conversation. I'm glad you remember it. Well, <laughs> and, well and let me say that, that it was amazing to me, one of the reasons I remember it, is because I was a huge nerd in high school. I was literally the kid who was always picked last for sports. So it's the first time anyone has ever asked me if I thought something was cool and then <laughs> cared about the answer. 
So it's a very memorable moment for me. <laughs> um, That's Tom, awesome that you remember it, though. Um, Thomas, we are running out of time. So it is time for the lightning round. Five quick questions, short answers. All right. You ready? Sure. All right. <laughs> I think we, we already have touched on this, but what's the first restaurant you worked at? I've never worked in a restaurant before. Peli Peli, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's the first concert you attended? Uh, had to be in New Order. That's a, that's a cool answer. <laughs> um, that's only because I didn't go to many when I was in little. I was like probably 22 when I first concert. Uh, who is your favorite Houston sports figure, uh, past or present? Oh, I don't know if it would count. Vince Young. You know, I it know absolutely he's... counts. All right, from here, that counts. Yeah. And then... Uh, What's the best new Houston restaurant you've tried recently? And you can't say Peli Peli, Katie. Uh, no, uh, I, you know, I enjoyed, you know, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I enjoy snooze. Uh, I, I, I had a really good breakfast there. That, uh, pan, that uh, pancake flight is the bomb. I, I'm totally with you. I don't understand. <laughs> There's like a low level like snooze hate. And if you ever post Why? about it's snooze, crazy. post about snooze on Facebook, you'll get the snooze haters out. I don't understand. I don't understand it either. I really like it. All right. And you're, Finally, your favorite place to get a taco, and you can't say Peli Peli Kitchen. Jeez, um, you stuck me there. <laughs> um, you know, there's a place near Katie Mills, and they're going to kill me because I don't remember the name. It's a Mexican place. It's right at Katie Mills Boulevard in I-10. Uh, but it's a, a mom-and-pop, small, awesome, authentic tacos. Uh, amazing. They do a beef uh, tongue taco. That's really amazing. Thomas, thank you so much. We can follow you on Instagram at South African Asian. All one word. <laughs> no hyphens, no spaces. And, of course, you can keep track of everything with Peli Peli at Peli Peli, P-E-L-I-P-E-L-I dot com. Uh, thanks to my co-host from earlier, Mary Clarkson from Olivier. You can follow me on Twitter at E. Sandler, on Instagram at Eric Sandler. And, of course... Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest bar and restaurant news. I will be back next week with Chris Shepard talking about the new menu at One Fifth Romance Languages. Thanks so much for listening.